Well, now is the time of our gathering when we are going to uh, devote ourselves to the Word of God, spend some time uh, in the Bible. And the reason we're doing that is that we believe the Bible is God's Word to us, that it is uh, instructive and helpful and encouraging. And this is um, something that's especially helpful in times of difficulty, which we're in right now. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to dig into uh, the Word and see what God has for us this morning. Uh, Lord God, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that uh, especially in light of everything that's going on, uh, we, are, we have not been left to our own wisdom or our own uh, devices. Uh, Lord, you've spoken to us. You've given us your word. You've, uh, Lord, you've given us insight into what it means to be human and, and really every situation that we find ourselves in. Uh, so Lord, I pray that you would help us today. I pray for everyone listening, wherever they are, wherever they're watching from, Lord, I pray you'd speak specifically into every situation, and Lord, that indeed you would help us in light of what you reveal about yourself here in your word. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, today around the world, uh, the Christian church is celebrating Palm Sunday. Uh, Palm Sunday is the Sunday before Easter Sunday. Uh, It's the day when Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey when his followers came out and they celebrated, they waved palm branches, Uh, they shouted, Hosanna, here comes the king. Uh, If you were there in that moment, it would have seemed like everyone was very, very happy to see Jesus. But the truth is uh, that there were many people there that were not happy at all. In fact, there are a lot of tensions there in that scene uh, between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day, and in fact, even the Roman officials of the day. Uh, Our sermon series uh, for Easter has been called Conflicting Kingdoms because we've been kind of tracking the growing tension between Jesus and these different uh, authorities. But the interesting thing that we're going to see in our text today is that there there wasn't just conflict between Jesus and and the authorities of the day, there was also conflict within the disciples of Jesus uh, themselves. So the text we're going to look at is Luke 22, verses 24 to 27. Uh, This is the Thursday of Easter week, the Last Supper. Uh, This is a famous event, really made famous visually by Leonardo da Vinci in his masterpiece, The Last Supper. You can see an example uh, of it there. Um, I'm not sure if you saw online this week, but there is someone who digitally uh, redid The Last Supper, uh, a COVID-19 version of The Last Supper. We're going to put it up there uh, on the screen. Uh, You can see uh, the the physical distancing. Jesus is on his own and everyone else is sort of video conferenced in. That's not what it would have been like. It would have been like Da Vinci, you know, did it. Everyone piled on top of each other, ignoring all sorts of social distancing regulations, it would have been a party. In fact, everyone in Jerusalem on that night was partying, celebrating, it was Passover, it was a really happy event. And in the midst of this very happy, exciting event, uh, this is what happens. This is our first verse, verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So, so in the midst of this really happy time, uh, they get into an argument about who is the best disciple. I know what you're thinking. How, how could they be so petty? How could they be so self-absorbed? I mean, yes, they didn't, they didn't know. They knew it was Passover. They didn't know it was the last Passover they'd be together. They didn't know that years from now, people would be talking about this as the last supper. But, but they did know that there were some significant things going on. I mean, Jesus had just finished saying some very deep and weighty things about the new covenant. He had served the first communion meal. I mean, how could they start bickering at a, at a time like this? Well, for one thing, we should know that this is kind of how human beings tend to behave. Even at, 
you know, very important occasions. Weddings, for instance. Just think of how many weddings have been ruined by some family member who gets up for a toast, a toast to the bride, and decides that that's the time when they should air some grievances about the bride's mother and just ruins the whole wedding. Everyone's in tears. Think of how many uh, holidays have been wrecked by family members who just get into an argument at the dinner table, yelling and screaming at each other. This is what people tend to do. The truth is that we all have an amazing lack of self-control when it comes to arguments with those we love. And very often it happens at the worst possible time. And this is especially true when it comes to arguments that have not really ever been truly resolved. Uh, For example, uh, for Dawn and I, my wife Dawn and I, if if you were to ask us uh, to this very day whether I have ever forgotten her birthday, uh, there would be a disagreement. Not a screaming match disagreement, but still a disagreement because she would say, yes, I have forgotten her birthday. I would say, no, no, I've never forgotten her birthday. Technically, I have forgotten to wish her happy birthday on her birthday, but that was years ago, and that was at a time when we had celebrated her birthday like three days before. We had done a dinner, presents. So I remembered her birthday. I just forgot on the day of her actual birth. It's it's not important. My point is that we all have disagreements like this. Things that, that our buttons get pushed, we get triggered, and we can immediately get heated. And this was one of those issues for the disciples. In fact, we see in the Bible uh, at least three other times that are recorded where they got into this kind of an argument, where they they argued about who was the greatest. Uh, Luke chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, and Matthew chapter 20. Um, And this one I love. Uh, Let me read this to you. So the disciples are all together, and um, uh, here's what it says in verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, Jesus said, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right and one at your left in your kingdom. So imagine that for a moment, right? James and John get their mom to go talk to Jesus to ensure that they would get the positions of highest authority in his kingdom. It's crazy. And when the disciples hear about it, they start to grumble and complain and they and they get into another argument. But the question for us is, okay, why did it come up on this day? Why at Passover? Why at the Last Supper? Well, we actually, we know what triggered them. Uh, it was something that Jesus said. This is in verse 21, just a, a few verses earlier. He says, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. So here Jesus is making a reference to Judas. We, we know it's Judas. He knows it's Judas. But the disciples, they didn't know who he was talking about. So right away, they start defending themselves. It's not me, it must be you. They start attacking each other. And before long, verse 24, then a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So on and on they went with this petty bickering on one of, you know, the most supposed to be special nights of the year. And Jesus, Jesus sees right to the heart of the issue. See, they desired greatness, but they had the completely wrong idea about what greatness actually is. So Jesus, he gives them a contrast. He gives them a contrast between greatness from the world's point of view and greatness from God's point of view. And that's going to be the focus of the rest of our time together. That's the rest of our passage. He he contrasts the two and, and shows which is the true greatness. So first, 
First, he points out worldly greatness. This we find in verse 25. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors. So when he says kings of the Gentiles, he's really talking about the world, about those who are not Jewish. So the Romans, the Persians, whoever it is. And, and when he says they exercise lordship and authority, uh, what he means there is that they, they dominate or they rule with power. So he's saying that's the essence of worldly greatness, selfish power. And in fact, that's exactly how the ancient uh, kings used to rule. For example, probably the best example is Alexander the Great. Uh, not just because he has the word great in his title, but because he was one of the most famous, most powerful uh, Greek rulers. He, he ruled about 350 years before Jesus. He was an incredible uh, ruler. He was educated by Aristotle. Uh, he was a brilliant military commander. Uh, wherever he went, he established cities and schools and libraries. Uh, he introduced Greek art and culture throughout the known world at the time. But he was called great because he conquered most of the known world at the time. Uh, his empire stretched from Greece all the way to India. So he had conquered all of these people. Now, he was known for being uh, kind and benevolent, in a sense, towards his subjects, but that was only if they listened to him. If they obeyed him, if they paid him taxes, then he was a, a benevolent leader. And of course, that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying they might have a title like benefactor, but really, really this kind of greatness is all about power. And that's not just for the ancient world. Even today, we have this, this idea associated with, with greatness. Um, one study I came across, or not study, but uh, assignment, something that they give to Harvard business students. Uh, they make them do an assignment uh, called, uh, what do I hope to achieve in life after graduation? They have to come up with their top three goals for what they, they want to do. And not surprisingly, the goals are wealth, uh, notoriety, and status. So what they're saying basically is that the recipe for a great life, as far as they're concerned, is to be very rich, to be very well known, and to have a position of influence uh, or power in society. Now we have to just, I want to be clear here. Um, I'm not saying that money or power is inherently evil. But, but really we should be asking the question, is, is that the recipe for greatness for individuals or for our community? Like is, is really that's that's what we think is best for us, that kind of greatness? This isn't just a question for the top 1%. Most of us tend to have this view of greatness. Even for those of us who aren't building business empires or running for political office, we, we tend to be drawn to power for selfish reasons. I mean, just think for a moment about how great it feels when you are in control when the, the people and the circumstances of your life are going the way that you want them to, at work, at home, wherever you may be, aren't we, aren't we constantly uh, seeking to, to be in a situation where we feel satisfied that everything is going the way that we want it to go? Now, to be clear, again, there are certain positions that we need to be in where we give people direction. Right? There are bosses and employees. There are teachers and students, children and parents. The problem, though, with us, with most of us, is that we tend to think that everyone is our employee. Everyone is our student. Everyone is our child. In our mind, in my mind, what tends to be running through it is how much better everything would be if 
people would just do what I tell them to do. If, if the world would orchestrate itself around my wishes, then everyone would be happy. The problem is, that's what all of us are thinking. All of us are thinking, if everything would just go the way I want it to, it would be great. And of course, that leads to conflict. In fact, this view of greatness, the, the, the pursuit of selfish power, it leads to a lot of conflict. Not just in geopolitical terms, but in our homes and in our communities. I mean, the situation we're in right now uh, poses a lot of problems. In self-isolation, uh, for some of us, the real struggle we have is with loneliness. And, and it's understandable. We maybe live by ourselves, we're in a dorm, we're in an apartment, and the only interaction that we have is, is virtually. We go out sometimes, or maybe we're not even able to, and we're really we're struggling with that. And, and rightly so, that's, that's, a, that's a challenge. But the other challenge of self-isolation is when you are being isolated with people, people that you love, people in your family. And all of a sudden, the, the buffer, the margin that you're used to having with the people in your life is gone. I mean, we're used to doing life with people, but usually we get breaks, right? We're with each other for a short amount of time, then we, we go away from each other to school or work, then we come back together, and now everywhere we turn, there's someone in our face, in our business, I was talking to uh, a guy from the church and he was saying that his, his house hasn't been this full in years uh, because he has three kids, two of them are young adults, they'd, they'd moved out, they were at school or, or work and both school and work had closed down so they'd come back home to live and now there's five people in their house instead of three. Uh, his teenage son was there before but once everyone got back into the house, uh, they had to reestablish the social pecking order and there was a lot of conflict. Uh, of course, there's conflict. I mean, there's conflict in every home, normally speaking, but especially in this kind of close quarters. Like right now, in this house where I'm filming this sermon, the only reason you don't hear yelling is because before I pressed record on the camera, I threatened everyone within an inch of their life, promised them candy, gave them a screen, and said, please, you have to be quiet while I film this sermon. There's always conflict when people are put into close proximity with one another, and that's because that's because the human heart really hasn't changed much in 2,000 years. The selfish impulses that prompted the disciples to continually disagree about who is the greatest still prompts us to lash out at someone in our life for not doing things the way that we want it done or not showing us the respect that we think we deserve. See, worldly greatness seems natural and compelling to us as human beings, but when we really see it for what it is, we see that it's hollow and selfish and that it leads to increasing conflict in our lives and in the world. So Jesus, he contrasts all of this with a totally different version of greatness. We're going to call it godly greatness. And he explains it in verse 26. He says to the disciples, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. So there he's, he's speaking to the disciples, but by extension, he's speaking to us, to anyone who's interested in doing things God's way. And the example he gives is not that of a mighty ruler with a lot of power. Instead, he points them to the youngest among them. Now you have to understand here that the, the young in uh, first century sort of culture was, it was a very different thing than today. Today, uh, young people, they have it. I mean, it's a pretty good gig, really. There's not a lot of pressure. There's not a lot of financial responsibility. There's a lot of toys, a lot of gadgets, a lot of entertainment. 
any um, idea they have, they can put online. People will like it. They'll feel great about themselves. It's no surprise that in our day, we have difficulty having, uh, you know, getting people to grow up. But back then, all the young people couldn't wait to grow up because being a young person in that culture was a very low position. I mean, they were the ones who had to do all of the work in the household. Uh, they had no status. They had no power. They had to listen to everyone else to gain wisdom. It was their job to serve everyone else in the household. And in fact, this idea of service is really what Jesus wants to, uh, to put his focus on. You'll notice the next thing he says is the one who serves. He mentions that three times. Uh, that literally refers to the servant in the household, the one who would clean up the table, the one who would cook, the one who would do all the menial work in the home. Theirs was a culture that was filled with servants and everyone knew that there was nothing noble about servants' work. The only reason you would be a servant is if you didn't have enough money or power to have someone serve you. And yet here Jesus flips everything on its head because what he says is true greatness means embracing the role of a humble servant. Godly greatness, he says, then really means humble service. And this is not the first time he said something like this. In fact, every time this argument has come up, he's responded in the same way. Uh, let's go back to Matthew 20 with James and John and their mom and the disciples. Here's how he responds to their request. He says in verse 26, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. This kind of teaching about the importance of humility, um, it becomes a central point of emphasis for Christian living. In fact, the Apostle Paul, uh, in writing to the Philippians, he says to them, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. But the big question is why? Like, why, why is that the greatest? Because if we're honest, we'd say it doesn't feel great. It doesn't feel fantastic to serve the people around us. And yet, what Jesus is saying here is that this, this is the greatest. Why? Why? Why is this the best? Well, the answer is simple. Humble service is the greatest because it exemplifies true love. See, we know there are a lot of kinds of love. There's, there's romantic love, there's passionate love, there's love of friendship, love of country, but the essence of love is that we are, we are putting someone else before ourselves. We're caring for someone, we're serving them, we love them, and so we want to put them first. That's what true love means. In fact, that's what we see in the Bible, in, in the verse that we, we always hear at weddings, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 7, says, love is patient. And kind, love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Do you see how worldly greatness is the exact opposite of that? And can you see... Can you see how all of our efforts to become great from the world's point of view tends to hurt the people around us? See, Jesus says the only way to truly show love is through humble service. And this is what it means to be great from God's point of view. Now, the beautiful thing about, about um, acquiring this understanding of greatness is that it, it changes our life. It fundamentally changes the way that we interact with the people around us. 
in, in the day-to-day areas of our life. In fact, it changes our expectations for what our life should be like day in, day out. This becomes really clear when we look at some of the other translations of this verse. One, uh, just in doing some reading, I found out how they translate it for uh, a group of tribesmen in Papua New Guinea, the Itamal people. Um, now you have to understand, uh, before I read the translation, uh, for the Itamal people, they travel by canoe a lot. It's one of their primary modes of transportation. And in a canoe, uh, according to their culture, the most important person sits in the middle, the second most important person sits at the front, and the least most important person sits in the back, in the stern, because they're the ones who paddle and do all the work. So now here's how they translated this verse uh, so that it would be under, uh, understandable and applicable for the Itamal people. If a person wishes to be a leader, he should not sit in the middle of the canoe. Let him sit in the stern. Let him do everyone's work. That last line uh, is, is the part about clarifying our expectations because what it, what it means, what we should grasp, is if we are going to pursue greatness from God's point of view, then we should expect to do a lot of work. We, we should not expect other people to work for us. We should, we should look to do whatever it takes to encourage and bless and help the people around us, and that's, that's going to mean work. It's going to mean effort. It's going to mean being tired at the end of each day because we have really sought to, to serve the people around us. This is greatness from God's point of view. And the truth of the matter is that right now we can see amazing examples of this kind of greatness. In light of the crisis that's going on in our community, there are many who are humbly serving the community by putting themselves in positions of danger or peril or difficulty. I'm thinking primarily, of course, of, of those who work in our healthcare system. Uh, I was reading uh, a CNN article just talking about the reality of of kind of life in the healthcare system, in some of the hardest hit uh, hospitals dealing with COVID-19. And I want to run, read to you uh, a couple of quotes. This is from an ICU nurse from the University of Chicago uh, Hospital. And she says this, when I was working on the COVID unit, some nurses did not want to eat or drink for 12 hours because they were scared to take off and put on the same personal protective equipment. Another from Elmhurst, New York says, we work in a constant state of paranoia. We don't know if we even have the virus and we're so scared that we might give it to someone else. You can just imagine what it's like going to work every day with that kind of stress and tension. Maybe some of you are working here in BC in some of our hospitals on some of the COVID wards and you know this, this kind of uh, tension that you're in, this, this feeling of, of putting yourself out there and you're doing it because you know there's patients who need to be cared for. We're so thankful that you're serving in that way. We're so thankful that there are people who are seeking to, to humbly serve those who need help. See, in times of crisis, the things that are truly important to us as human beings and, and are truly great become very, very clear. We rightly honor and esteem those who are putting their lives on the line, not just doctors and nurses, but orderlies, those in administration, first responders. So many people serving so that we might be helped in our time of need or be uh, prevented from the disease spreading further. But this is not just instruction for those on the front lines of this crisis or any crisis. See, part of the reason it's so important that we understand the nature of true greatness is so that we will embrace the immediate and personal implications for us as individuals. See, godly greatness doesn't require years of planning 
or building or clawing our way to the top so that one day we might achieve greatness. See, we, we can pursue greatness in the eyes of God today. We can do it if we open our eyes to see the opportunities that exist to serve the people around us. Just think of the difference that a humble heart will make in the life of any family, whether you are in quarantine or not. Think for a moment about the power of selfless love to heal long-standing hurt or reconcile broken relationships. And think of how much better things go when we try to serve people rather than control them. I don't actually think that many people would argue with Jesus about his definition of true greatness. Whether you're a Christian or not, believe in the Bible or not, we, could, we, we see it's, it's self-evident just looking at the people who are serving us right now. The challenge, of course, is, is how we do it. How do we actually live this way? See, the disciples, that was their challenge. They'd heard this teaching from Jesus a number of times, and yet here, they're, they're having the same struggle, the same argument. So what do we do? How can we seek to pursue this kind of greatness and, and serve people in a humble way? Well, Jesus gives us one final point of insight into the struggle for true greatness, and it comes in verse 27. He says, For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. So here Jesus contrasts again these two views of greatness. And you can see what he's saying is, look, everyone knows what is greater, what we feel is greater from the world's point of view, right? It's, it's not the servant, but it's the one who serves. It's the, not the one who reclines uh, at table. Sorry, not the one who cleans the table. It's the one who reclines at the table. In our day, we might say it's not the, the lowly intern, but it's the, the CEO, or it's not the valet, but it's the one who owns the Ferrari that the valet parks. We all, we all know what we're drawn to. Even if we can read the Bible, even if we have in our mind the idea we want to serve humbly, pursue God's idea of greatness, we know that in the day-to-day -day of, of our lives, in the corruption of our own heart, we tend to be drawn back towards the world's idea of what is great. We, we want to be served. So what does Jesus give us to help us to pursue that which is truly great? Well, let's notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, look, what you have to do is you have to dig deep. He doesn't say what we hear all around us all the time, that there's greatness within you. That if you could just get in tune with yourself, that you will see that all of that greatness just needs to be let out and then things would go better. In fact, he doesn't talk about the disciples at all. He points to himself. He says, but I am among you as the one who serves. See, what Jesus is saying is the greatest motivation to pursue humble service is to be captivated by him. To have at the forefront of our mind and our heart the character and the example of Jesus. Because Jesus, he had everything that the world would say you need for greatness. He, he had wealth, he had power, he had authority and status, but he displayed his true greatness by giving all of that up and coming down to earth to serve us. In fact, that's what we see in his response. Go back one more time to Matthew 10. The very end of when he's responding to that request from James and John and, and their mom, he says this. He says, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave to all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, when Jesus was up in heaven, 
He had everything he needed. He was more than great. He was glorious. He was majestic. He was, he was divine. He was worshipped. And from his point of view, he had no reason to come down to earth. And yet he did. Not for his sake, but for our sake. And he didn't just come down from heaven to live amongst us. He came down from heaven, what it says there is, to give his life as a ransom for us. See, we lived on earth in our sin, which means that there was this mounting debt of sin, this penalty that needed to be paid, and that penalty was death. Jesus, who had life and created life, came down and he died in our place. That's the Easter story. That's what all of this is leading to. The very next day after the, the Last Supper is when Jesus would allow himself to be arrested, tortured, he would suffer on our behalf, and then ultimately die as a ransom so that the penalty would be paid so that we would be set free from death. And the reason that we know that he achieved it is that on Easter Sunday, he rose from the grave. And he promised, he, he ensured that everyone who puts their faith in him would have that same hope of life after death, that death would no longer hold us. See, what we see with the Easter story, what Jesus is pointing to and saying, I've come to serve, he's saying, this is the depth of my love for you. This is an example of true greatness because it is the greatest example of humble service. And if we are going to seek to serve the people around us, we should, we should not just be motivated by this example, we should be transformed by it. We should be made new through our faith by the work and power of the Holy Spirit so that we too can love and serve in this way. One of the most beautiful sort of just articulations of how Jesus loves us is found in Philippians. I'm going to end with this so that we can see the connection between um, understanding his loving service, his humble sacrifice for us, and how it is that we can live in the same way. So here's Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not take equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see what it, how it begins there. It says, have this mind among yourselves. If you, would, if you would want to follow in the way of Jesus, you have to have the mind of Jesus. You have to recognize the extent he went to to serve us and then seek to serve people in the same way. See, there are two kinds of greatness. There's worldly greatness and there's godly greatness. The question for us is, which one are we pursuing? Which one? If you look back on your past week, whether you've been in isolation or not, whether you're with family members or not, which one have you been pursuing? Which, which kind of interactions do you notice in yourself? Is there, is there a leaning towards selfish power and control? Has it been bickering, wanting your own way, not being gracious with others? And the second question I think we should ask is looking forward, what might change in our homes or in our community if we pursued greatness from God's point of view in light of what Jesus has done for us on the cross? How might the, the relationships that we're engaged in change and be transformed? How might people be blessed if we sought to love people the way that Jesus loved us. 
This is what Jesus wants for his disciples back then and, and today. So I'm gonna end our time by praying for us that we would be transformed, that we would indeed seek to love each other in this way. So join with me. Lord God, I thank you for this reminder, this, this really strong, strongly worded reminder, Jesus, uh, a rebuke even of, of the world's idea of greatness. Lord, and I, I confess for me, often my idea of greatness, seeking my way as the best way. Lord Jesus, I pray for each one of us. I pray, God, that you would help us to be filled in our mind and our heart with your love, with your humility, with your example. And Lord, that, that we would not just try to do good out of our own strength, but Holy Spirit, you would, you would transform us, you would fill us. We, we, we would lay down our lives for the sake of the people around us. God, I'm so thankful. I'm so, so glad, Lord, um, so encouraged by those in our community that are doing this very thing those in the healthcare system, those on the front lines of, of first responders, uh, Lord, those uh, teachers, those, everyone who's seeking to serve each other in our community in difficult ways, in dangerous ways, so that we might be blessed. God, I pray you would encourage us in that way, encourage everyone who's in that position. But I also, Lord, pray for the, just our daily lives. Lord, would you help us to, to put our own ideas of what's best aside? and to fill our minds with what you say is best, Lord, and, and to seek to show true love to the people around us as you've loved us. I pray, Lord, for your help and your encouragement in this time of crisis. We pray that the virus itself would be eradicated, that it would stop spreading. Lord, but until that happens, may we draw nearer to you and nearer to each other by your grace. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to respond uh, to the teaching of God's word as we do each week. Uh, we're going to do it firstly through prayer. We'd love to pray with you. If you look on that live page on our website, you'll see a tab for prayer. You can submit prayer requests there or ask for someone to contact you. We'd love to, to pray with you over the phone. Um, the other way we respond is through giving. Uh, giving is one of the ways that we acknowledge that everything we have is from God. And so uh, you can give online. There's some options there. Uh, this is for those who call Tri-City Church home. So if you're a guest tuning in with us, please feel no obligation to give any money to this ministry. We're just so glad that you could join us. And the last way that we're going to respond today is through song. Uh, the, the music team is going to lead us in a, a bit more worship. I'd invite you to join in. But I'm so glad that you could be here with us today and hope very much that you will join us next Sunday for Easter Sunday. We'll see you then.